Thank you for tuning into the Hacking the Patriarchy podcast. I'm your fervent feminist host, Raven O'Neill, and I get the honors of sitting down with women experts from all walks of life to discuss the ideas, opportunities, and the strategies that women can take advantage of to get ahead in our patriarchal society. So if one of your love languages is learning how to hack patriarchal systems and structures, I invite you to join us and help move the needle. I'm excited to welcome today's guest, Nicole Taylor. Nicole is passionate about people development, entrepreneurialism within organization, and naturally gravitates towards opportunities to develop efficiency and client intimacy strategies. She spent her career rotating through many types of roles, from sales to operations, private to public, domestic to multinational, and manual to automated. Nicole has a track record of success working with executives to create and execute a wide range of strategies. She brings a wealth of established frameworks which help teams see the path to the finish line and shorten the time frame for projects. She's also a lifelong learner and constantly looking for ways to put seemingly unrelated items together and create something new. Nicole lives in Boston metro area and keeps herself busy with many hobbies, including learning conversational Spanish, rowing crew with a local team, and traveling with her children. She's also in the process of completing her 200-hour yoga teaching certification and loves sharing her practice. Let's all put our virtual hands together and offer Nicole the warmest welcome. Hi, everyone. I am super happy to have everyone tuning in today. I am super excited to be having a conversation with a friend, Nicole Taylor. We are going to talk all things negotiating today. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited too. This is a much needed conversation. I'm going to start out by asking your professional experience, how you feel men and women might negotiate differently. Yeah, thanks for this topic, by the way. I think it's something that we need to talk about more often, especially related to how men and women do it differently. I know that growing up in the business world, I was taught that there are things that I have to adjust in my style as I enter into negotiation conversations. And one of the things that I learned was that men have a tendency to assume they have all the skills and abilities and jump into the conversation with that anchor, as opposed to women do not assume that they have all of those skills and abilities. They, they take a, an actual accounting of what they bring to the table. And um, not just that, but they have a tendency to downplay what they actually bring to the table too and their skills. And my favorite example is I'm a big skier. And I have friends in the ski industry and they say when people come in to get fitted for ski rentals, they ask, what's your skill level? And whatever the men say, they take the skill level down a notch when they're adjusting the skis for rentals. And for women, they do it up a notch because women underestimate and men overestimate. And I think that is really very true in the negotiation world too. So that's that's my going understanding. So my personal approach is to make sure that I understand that going in, especially if I'm negotiating with a man or a woman or vice versa. That brings up an excellent point. Do you, in your professional opinion, do you believe women should cater their negotiations based on the sex of the person they're interviewing with or that they're negotiating with? Yeah, I think it, it's a great debate. There's going to be a lot of people who say yes and no. I you know, it's hard for me to say, yes, we need to cater because I like everybody to be treated exactly the same. 
But in reality, at the end of the day, I want to win my negotiation. And in order to win, I need to be cognizant and aware of the style and approach of the other person. And I know that women, if they are uh, very direct and assertive, can be perceived poorly, especially in a negotiation situation. So again, I would never give the advice to um, change style for any other general work situation, but in a negotiation where things are really critical and there's an objective to be met, being aware of the other style, I do think is very important. Okay, perfect. So this actually leads great into the the next question I have in my mind, which is what would you recommend for women in regards to preparing and then actually bringing what they have to that table? Yes. So there's a couple things that I love to share with, especially women, as they're building their toolkit of negotiation uh, resources. The first is to be very aware of what is important to them. And that requires taking a, a real accounting of all the things that are important to you. And I'll, I'll talk about it in the genre of uh, an employment negotiation, for example. A lot of people go into employment conversations thinking, I just want the most salary possible. And everybody knows that sitting on the other side of that is an employer that has a budget and a number they're trying to target. And so you're trying to get to the the highest level of the number they're willing to offer. They're trying to get to the lowest number you're willing to offer. And you have to do that without knowing each other's numbers. Like I said, I always suggest we take a, a real vulnerable accounting of what's important to us and it make it not just about salary. It's important to know how much you value time off, benefits, career advancement, and be prepared to create like a, a chart of a ranking rather of how important these things are to you. For example, I have a really good friend of mine that's at a point in her career where career advancement is her number one priority. And she's willing to take a lower salary in order to have mentoring and opportunity to rotate around. I think that's going into a conversation. I wouldn't say that, but if the person says a number, you can say, geez, that's a little low for me, but I can consider that if there is an opportunity for me to be mentored by the vice president of, of the organization, something like that. And some of the really critical things I think people forget about is a work from home, flexibility to work from home. If that's on your list, paid time off or flexible time off. Like I said, career advancement is a really good one. Benefits, maybe a lot of companies these days are offering to pay student loans, uh, make student loan payments on your behalf as part of your package. So like I said, just sitting down and making a list of those things so that you can go into the conversation with something more than just salary numbers. And I'll take a quick breath and say that ties really nicely into the second tool that I encourage, especially women to have in their, their, their quiver. And it's, we call it MESOs, <laughs> which is an acronym. It's M-E-S-O, which stands for Multiple Equivalent Simultaneous Offers. It's a mouthful. But really what that is, is you're putting together little bundles of things that are equal to you. And I always say come with or have three in your mind. Maybe one is at a high salary level, one's at a mid salary level, and one's at a lower salary level. But the packages are equal by the other things that go in. So you may say, I want this high salary level, but I know I have to give up PTO in order to do that. 
or I'm willing to go at a lower salary level, but that's because I require some flexible time to work from home, something like that. Having three buckets of things that are truly equal in value to you is going to help you negotiate in a much stronger way with, especially in an employment situation. Oh, I love that. And I love that you said three. One of my favorite numbers. I feel like everything comes in threes, right? That's such sage advice. I don't think I've ever come with three options. I do prioritize what I want to get out of it and then decide where the flexibility is, which is funny too. I, I would say like, I only do that when I come to negotiations and it's probably a much better idea to almost have it be like a living document where you circle back because those things are going to shift, right? When you're in 20s, you your priorities are totally different than when you're in your 30s or your 40s or anywhere else. Yes, absolutely. Revisiting that priority list should probably be an annual activity because to your point, your life changes so much. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. Great advice. Yeah, that and that brings up another question in your experience. How often should you come up against renegot or request renegotiations or look at getting back into the negotiation? Yeah, in, in employment situations, it can be tricky because especially in big organizations, sometimes there's a lot of rules that the HR group doesn't have any leeway around. But my suggestion for individuals who feel like or no, because we all talk about our salary levels in organizations, you're not getting paid comparatively to somebody else is one. There's another acronym called BATNA, which stands for Best Alternative to a Negotiated Agreement. Having BATNA is really important before you engage in any dialogue, particularly with renegotiations. And all that means is go find out what your options are. Your best alternative to a negotiated agreement might be another job that you negotiated. It might be leaving and living on your savings for a while. It might mean starting your own business, whatever that is. Maybe you have a couple different offers from a couple different places, but first and foremost, having an alternative to a negotiated agreement because entering any negotiation can be risky. It can strain relationships. Even the best ones can get strained because these are tricky situations. But in a negotiation, I always say, go into them at a point where you are ready to prove something, not after you've proved something, right? I feel like people say, I just had the best year of my career. You should pay me for that. And that's usually not very effective with employers. What's more effective is you can say, I'm going to set a really difficult goal for myself this year. I'm going to increase sales by 30%. If I do that, will you give me X amount of raise or whatever the case is and get them to put that in writing? Usually you're going to get a better reaction from a look forward request as opposed to a look back. That's interesting. See, I would not have ever thought to do that. So I guess that brings up another point. And I don't know if it's different again between men and women or anything specific, but at what point is a negotiation strong? And if it's not, how do you position it to be strong? Yeah, a great question. I think that goes back to that. I have seen people work really hard in their career to become indispensable. And they think that is their biggest negotiating tactic. And I would say, no, that is not it. Because if you become indispensable, you're not promotable. Uh, and I, I don't think people put the, those two things together. You might get a raise, but probably not if you're doing this. If you're at the same high level of performance every single year, 
they know that's where you're going to be and will keep you at that level. So I, what I'm usually recommending is find ways to make yourself indispensable. That's not a word, but figure out how to document your knowledge and memorialize things in places, train a successor, get an apprentice, and then show how you're doing all of that. So that again, you can do that go forward approach. And if that's not working, like I said, I know fear is a very powerful motivator. It's a short-term motivator. It's not our favorite motivator, but having alternatives can make your employer see things in a different way. Do you know what I mean? If you can go secure another position for more money, you can say, hey, I love working here. I've done all this stuff. Here are some things I think I can add in the future, but I don't think I'm being valued in the place or way that I want. And somebody else is willing to offer me that. I don't want to leave if you're able to match the offer, but it does require having something else in the hopper. What about not having something else but saying you do? <laughs> you can certainly try. That's a high risk situation, right? And I've been on the other side of that where I said, okay, that sounds great. Good luck to you and have a nice day. Especially in this environment where the job market is getting back to an employer favored market, that would be a pretty risky scenario. <laughs> so you bring up an excellent point too of like employer favored versus at a time when it's on the other end, the employee favored. Would you say that you should approach negotiations different based on the employment climate? A great question. I don't know personally that I would approach them any differently just because I have a system that works. The difference that the environment will make is an awareness of where the price levels are and what's available. So during COVID, for example, people were changing jobs a lot. And because of that, employers increased their salary levels for jobs across the board. So knowing that says would tell me, okay, then I need to increase my expectations, right? It might increase my number, but it wouldn't change my approach. Versus now the market is more stable and employers do have more favorability in discussions. But I wouldn't And so just, I would need to know what the market is paying for those jobs, but I wouldn't adjust my approach if that makes sense. Gotcha. Yes, it does. I'm sure that, like you said, there were so many changes that happened during COVID with people leaving, the great resignation, and like what they're willing to offer. I know that now the stumbling block is coming back to companies want their workers in the office and there's that pushback. You're getting people that are leaving because they're like, absolutely not. You're probably Mm -hmm. getting... Since we're talking about negotiation, I'm sure that is a huge negotiating point today in regards to career and being like, I want to work from home three days a week or whatever that looks like. And I know a ton of people that are completely 100% virtual and companies have shifted to accommodate that. But what does that look like? moving forward. And I don't know if you have an answer to that. I wish I did because (laughs) I feel like then I could help a lot of people like the real estate market is really struggling from the ambiguity in that question too. My, My perspective on that is going back to those mesos, right? If you're in a situation where you're negotiating for a job, like how much does that work from home create value for you versus dollars and cents in your paycheck? And like having a really clear, vulnerable stance on that for yourself is going to be incredibly helpful, right? Because then somebody offers you a job for a super high dollar amount, but it's in the office five days a week, then you know how to evaluate that versus not. 
the more I talk to people, the more I think there will be some level of in-person time. I think it's still going through its evolution. This is my personal opinion. There's still some leaders and some organizations that feel you have to be in person, you have to be in person, and they don't really know why. They have a, a list of things that they say, but they're not. there's no data to back that up. But the successful organizations that I see have having people go back into the office are using it in a really purposeful way. They pick in office time when there's collaborative meetings or um, for events or team building, or it's just everybody in the office all on one day. You can see people walk around. Where I see it not working is when it's pick your three days and not everybody's there and people are sitting in their offices still on Zoom and it feels very unpurposeful. And that's what's creating the disengagement. Like I said, as opposed to the organizations that are being really deliberate about it. And there's huge value in that. So I'm a person that likes in-person time. I'm a relationship person. Um, but I also value being able to make my own lunch from my refrigerator with healthy options and do yoga in the afternoon when I wrap up. And those are things I can't do if I'm in an office every week. So again, I'm a big believer in relationships and in-person time, but when it makes sense and deliberately. Yeah. I love the intentionality. I feel like through the several recordings that I've done for this podcast, everything is about being intentional. It really just makes a difference in life in general. And I like the intentionality of being in the office because it is so true that I feel like there were times when I was in the office that I was super productive because there were certain things happening. But then there are other times when it was not as productive because everyone stops by to say hi. And all of a sudden we're talking about all this other stuff. And so I do, I see the, if it's intentional and it has, has goals and it has a purpose that it could be that way. I know I, I do miss in office sometimes. I miss the camaraderie and the energy. You, it's almost a motivator sometimes to just have other people's energy and lively atmosphere. Yeah. My favorite in office times were there was some problem that needed to be solved and everybody comes out of their offices, stands in the hallway, and they're just throwing ideas at each other to solve the problem. And within 20 minutes, you've got a few things that you can try. Like those are the moments where you're like, yes, this is why we're all here and we're all working together. And then there's the other moments you say where there's always one person in the office that as soon as they come by, you're going to lose an hour of your life. (laughs) And you've got a thousand meetings and things piling up on your desk. And those are the less fun days where you're in the office. But But yeah, I agree. I think it's the intentionality and finding those moments. And I still think that there's a way to have those hallway conversations through a lot of the technology and tools we have today if we embrace them that way. And I don't know that everybody's quite there yet, too. Yeah. yeah. Evolution in progress, in my opinion. Where will it be in five years, 10 years, yeah, 20 years? Yeah, I'd love to know that. Yes. <laughs> crystal ball. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Lots of things I could use a crystal ball for sure. <laughs> All right. Coming back to, I know that I started off with a question of do men and women negotiate differently? And we have the viewpoint of, yes, there is that approach and there is ways to get ahead of it and get behind it in regards to how we handle it. But I want to talk, I know that neither of us are, I I don't think you have a degree in psychology. I don't. (laughs) No, Um, sometimes I feel like I do based on all the books that I've read, but no, I don't have a degree in psychology. (laughs) But I want to talk more about the way it might feel 
to, mm-hmm. to approach negotiations because I imagine that there is a difference. And I get again, I have to imagine because I'm only on the one side of the gender being a woman, the way it feels to approach a negotiation. Yeah, I, I appreciate the question. And I've had the opportunity to practice mock negotiations quite a bit. I sat through a program where we learned gender differences and cultural differences based on the country that you're from, going as deep into things like which cultures see eye contact as confrontational versus see it as expected as part of building a relationship. So it's incredibly nuanced. There's so many different things to consider. I believe that women are generally in the camp of creating harmony and negotiating is not a harmony situation. So it can feel weird and off-putting to wander into that voluntarily and being prepared for it. My advice has always been go in with a mind of curiosity as opposed to harmony, which really works for negotiations anyway, because the more we understand our counterpart, the more we understand what's important to them, the better we can go through those mesos and figure out which one to offer them. Right. And we don't know, we we won't know which one to offer them without that really intense curiosity. And for women, I think it's easy to ask questions and get things out of people. For men, go into it with an objective of, I want to win. And (laughs) they usually use silence as a tactic, which is very difficult when you go in with a curiosity approach. So there's another concept called mirroring which is very commonly used in relationship management, but works great in negotiations too. And that's just simply um, following the pattern of speech of the other person. So if they're talking fast, you talk fast. If they sit and ponder and be silent, you sit and ponder and be silent. And that that works. That Again, it feels weird if you are mirroring somebody that's really different from you, but it's super effective. There's another thing, and this is not necessarily specifically related to what you asked, but something I think is similar. There's always a question negotiation about who who should go first. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard that one. Like you, you both came to the table. You say your niceties. There's always a little bit of a dance, right? Like, how was your weekend? It was good. <laughs> you know, I'm really glad to be here. This deal is important to us. Uh, it's important to us too. We're looking forward to partnering. But how do you figure out if you go first, right? It really depends on the situation. There's no one answer fits all. I know some people are taught always go first because there's this concept called anchoring, which our brains focus on the first thing given to us. An example is if I asked you, what is the average temperature in Boston? Is it 75 degrees? 65 degrees or 20 degrees? I'm going 65. Okay. (laughs) I have no idea what it is. It's probably none of those things. But because I started with a number, you're automatically thinking. And you might say, you know what, Nicole? I don't think it's any of those. I lived in Boston for 25 years, and I'm pretty sure the average temperature is 55. And I would say, yeah, you're probably right. But because I gave you a number, Mm -hmm. our brains anchor on it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people say go first because of that anchor. Some people say don't go first because you want to see what their opening number is and you can figure out how to react to it. 
The problem with that is if they go first and they anchor something that's way out of your range, you're already anchored and it's difficult to come off that anchor. So again, it depends on the situation. I always say if you have a lot of knowledge and a lot of information about where they're coming from and where they might land, then let them go first and then go from there. But if you have no idea, then probably better to anchor and at least get your number out there, knowing you have some tools to maneuver around in if you get to a place where it was a, a non-starter. So I know I deviated a little bit there, but oh it reminds me of the, the... No, I am... I, like, I'm fascinated because it's so true. Like, I was just having a conversation the other day where we were talking and it was brought up that you never throw out the number first. You always let them because then you can go from there. But you make an excellent point because when you throw out the numbers, my mind is already playing a numbers game. That's so fascinating. Yeah. And like I said, what if it's a salary negotiation and you you throw out $250,000? And they had five hundred thousand available. Then you just lay two hundred fifty thousand on the table because you went first, right? So mm-hmm. again, it just depends on the situation. You don't want to leave anything on this. So negotiation, they say, is all about trying to get to the 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 point in which they feel good about what they got, and you feel good about what you got, and there isn't a lot of extra left on the table. Mm-hmm. You don't want to leave extra on the table for either side. And that's it's almost impossible. There's courses with math equations that figure out what the extra is called and how to calculate it. In reality, it's a psychological thing, but that's the goal. Yeah, because I think it was I think it was you when we were talking about doing this episode that you had said something about if they take you up on it too fast, you've left money on the table. If yeah. they walk away, you've just shot too high. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's usually... And that's funny. So we've been spending a lot of time talking about negotiating and in salary situation, but we negotiate business for ourselves all the time. As I was doing consulting, I, I could tell really quickly if somebody said yes to my price, I thought, oh my God, that was way too low, right? They were willing <laughs> to give more. I should have done more research. And sometimes that's how we learn. But yeah, absolutely. The other thing I think people don't realize is if somebody says no, that is the beginning of your negotiation. That's not the end of it. If somebody says yes, then like I said, you left things on the table. But if somebody says no, that's just the beginning. That's your opportunity to ask questions and be curious and know your mesos and be ready to have a conversation. It's not the end. It's just the beginning. See, I love that. That's a psychological psychology switch because I definitely, I am not a salesperson. The second someone is no, I'm like, cool, we're done here. And it's such an excellent point that like, that's the starting point. You've set the boundary. Now you work from there versus oops, threw that out and they took it and ran with it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to your point. If you're not a salesperson, you're not confrontational, you prefer harmony. These are very difficult things to again, willingly get into, but it's such an important skill. And I feel like women in particular don't take the time to practice. And as a result, we we might leave jobs and money on the table because we heard no. Yeah. Yeah. And so if someone came, let's like, we've talked a lot about salary negotiation or like contract negotiation, a lot around money. What, when would you say, let's just focus on money for a second, whether it's a contract or it's salary, the nego- buying a car, yeah. <laughs> the negotiation is around money. When is a good time in a process to bring up money? 
Yeah, again, I think it, my, I feel like my answers to all these questions is it depends probably because because <laughs> it does, because it does. Yeah, yeah. I think it is so critically important to do your homework and your research. I would never go into a negotiation blind, right? I'm ne- I would never go to, by the way, the worst place to negotiate is in the car world. No offense to car salesmen. They've got a the formula. Yeah. And you're, you give half of your day away sitting there doing it. <laughs> um, but you would, you, I would never ever walk onto a car lot and decide impulse buy a car because there's, I, I wouldn't have had the time to do the research. Even if I'd done the research beforehand on cars, that car in general, I didn't do my research on that car. So I would never start on anything without an immense amount of research. Now, I know that there are some times where you accidentally wander into a negotiation and it could happen at an annual review. It could happen if you're a consultant, you sit next to somebody on the airplane and they're really interested in your business and say, what's your price? Oh my gosh. Those are always the hardest ones, right? The ones that you're not prepared for that you accidentally walk into. My a default, I'm sure you can guess, is curiosity, right? Ask as many questions as possible. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, you've given me a lot to think about. I'd love to process this a bit and come back to you with an offer. I was going to ask, would you recommend always... Even if you're walking into a negotiation you didn't know you were walking into, kind of being like, I'm going to take the time to to noodle on this and I will get back to you. Absolutely. And you can say that with confidence because you will go do it, right? You'll go do your research and you'll get back to them. And they're going to, in the car situation, when you're buying the car, they're going to try to keep you on the lot and get you there. And we can confidently say, this is what I need to do and I will get back to you and, and you can do that. Sitting on the airplane, I don't want to lose business if there's a guy sitting next to me asking about my pricing. But the type of consultant I am, I want to give that person a fair price based on what they have. And I want repeat business. And so I feel obligated to do my due diligence. And the the right people will say, yes, that makes sense. And please come back later. Absolutely. That's what I was going to throw out there is I feel like in those situations, if you say, I would like to step back and digest this and get back to you, and that doesn't go over well, then you probably dodged a bullet. I want that customer anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. And I would reiterate, it's confidence and conviction. It's You can say, I don't know, and sound like you don't know what you're talking about. And you can say, I don't know, and sound like the most confident person in the world. And it's all about how you present yourself. And so saying, you know what, this is really important to me. I want to go back and put some thought into it. And I'd love to get back to you tomorrow. Of course, they're going to say, yes, that sounds wonderful. But if it's, geez, I don't know. And I need to give it some more thought, then you're not developing confidence. And to your point, if they say, nope, get out of here. I'm not interested. If you don't know your prices, you don't know what you're doing. You don't want to work with that person anyway. Yeah. You dodged a bullet because I imagine that's a nightmare down the line. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. So I just want to ask a couple more questions. I'm sure those will lead to a couple more things and then we can wrap this up. But I wanted to dive back into to bias because I know that in the first question I asked, we did talk about biased on on the other side of the table, not the table, not the side of the table you're bringing. And so we touched on it with a skiing analogy, which I love in your experience and I don't know if you have been on the consulting side of the other side of the table in how to help 
the other side of the table mitigate bias or know that it's even there. I'm sure that sometimes you don't even know it's there. Mm -hmm. But if you do, I imagine it's easier to like, to mitigate it, to not have it come up. But how might you recommend? Yeah, this one's tough. So I have personally spent a lot of time understanding bias. And it's not just gender and racial bias. It's bias and gender. There's things like recency bias and confidence bias. And there's so many different biases that we have just as humans. Understanding all of those helps me understand where the other person is so much better. So my approach is I don't expect other people to change their bias, but I I spend time understanding where they might be coming from so I can adjust my style so that I can be effective in a situation or exit if I don't think that person's going to be uh, somebody good for my network or my client base. And I have said no to clients for that reason many times. I'm in a position where I feel good about what I'm doing. I know I do a great job. I know my prices are fair. And I want to work with people who want to work with me too and get the most out of their value. And I don't feel like I need to sacrifice who I am because somebody has something that I they don't ingrained in them that they can't appreciate about me or at least hear where I'm coming from. I still think it's incumbent on me to be able to communicate in a way where I can be heard. And I think this is something else I mentor women on quite a bit. I feel like we have grown up in a world, men, women, everybody, where if I speak and you don't understand, it's your fault. But that's not my philosophy. My philosophy is if I speak and you don't understand, that's my fault because I didn't communicate it in a way that you can hear. And so it's my responsibility to figure out how your brain can receive based on where you're coming from and what you know and what you don't know. And taking ownership of that completely changes conversations for me. It's funny. My next question (laughs) was going to fall into that, but it's on the opposite side, which is so fascinating. Oh, I could probably go on about that all day because I was thinking when you're given a bias question, how to Mm -hmm. flip the script so that you answer it in a way that removes the bias. I love that. Do you have an example? The one I have comes from investors. Any investor might ask, how are you going to keep my money safe? Whereas they would have asked a man, how are you going to make my cash work for you? How are you going to grow it? And yeah. so when asked the question, how are you going to keep my money safe? The female founder would then answer, I'm going to grow your money by doing X, Y, and Z. So instead answering it like a gentleman would. Mm-hmm. Answer the question they would have asked for. Exactly. Also knowing the bias, mm-hmm. hearing the bias, and then flipping the script in your response. But yeah. again, too, it should be on the... It should be on... Going off of the philosophy you had, which I love, the person asking the question also should have been like, mm, they didn't receive that. Let me rephrase it or let me yeah, figure out what right. I... That's right. a nice meet in the middle. If everybody did that, we would... <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. The world would be a much better place. By the way, it's very difficult to do when you're angry. I can tell you about conversations I've had with my partner that it is hard to be neutral and be heard. But so being calm is definitely a prerequisite to that. But yeah, absolutely. If we could all do that. I just don't think people think about it that way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I actually feel... And this is bringing my own bias into the, we're talking about bias, you're bringing my own bias into the situation. I feel like as a woman, 
I might hear something clearer than I thought, but I also wouldn't want to step on anyone's toes by flipping mm-hmm. the script either. I would just be like, nope, we're done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hear that in that example you gave, that was a really good one because I, I could hear the question being answered in a way that still doesn't step on toes. Yes. Right? Yes. It is, it is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think I like that. I'm taking that away. And I think we can give ourselves permission to ask the the other question that they would have asked. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Again, a blend knowing, oh, that didn't come out right, or they didn't receive that. Let me try it again, knowing when is the right time to use which tool. Yeah, that's a great point, too. Again, going back to when somebody is emotional, being really careful about choosing which approach is even more important. In in an emotional situation, would you recommend saying, I need to step away? We'll come back to this. Because that's how I always feel. I'm like, to, to attempt to negotiate with someone who is emotional is not going to do, it's going to do everyone a disservice. Come back to that bad boy. Yeah, I, I, that's generally my go-to also. I've learned recently, though, there are some people that when you say, let's step away from this conference, like, there's some people that negotiate best in high emotion. And those people feel put off by pausing the conversation and going away. So I'm tr- something I'm trying now is I'll say, this feels like we've gotten to a point where I would benefit from some time. Instead of making it about them, I say, mm. I would benefit from some time. Would you be open to me taking three hours, 24 hours, whatever? to think this through and I'll get back to you. That that requires a prerequisite that you demonstrated that you do follow through on your promises, right? Some of this is about trust too, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't follow through on your promises, then come back in 24 hours isn't going to work. But but it's making making it about me instead of about them gives a little bit of that leeway away. Gosh, I, what I'm taking from this is is language matters. Yeah. (laughs) Like language absolutely matters. And your ability to understand your psychology and someone else being um, intentional with understanding the psychology of all the people involved, which is probably someone's full time job. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a great point. This is something that I decided early on in my career, I wanted to be good at I was not good at it. It was hard. It was uncomfortable. It was awkward. And to me, I put all that in a box and I said, all right, I'm going to need this for my job. I'm going to need this for my life. I'm going to find out how to get good at it. And I took some classes. And what I understood was the key to being good at negotiations is knowing how to read the other person. So in order to read the other person, I had to go learn a lot about psychology. So we do not have psychology degrees, but (laughs) you saw my library, you would think I did. And as a result, I've learned a lot more, not just about negotiations, but about how to manage relationships in general. And it's a much more happy life to live when um, I spend it being curious and intentional and thinking about the other person and knowing that I can have a really positive impact on somebody's day just by saying a couple words. It's pretty cool. So lots of other side benefits of the skill. (laughs) Oh, I love that. And you perfectly queued up my last and final question, which would be when women need to 
find support in negotiations, learn how to negotiate, go through that process. Again, probably a recognition of, oh, this is something I need to work on, whether it's for this exact moment or long term. I could definitely use it in that sales realm. Again, what might you recommend? Yeah. So two things, if you're a reader and interested in diving into some of the psychology, there's a book called Nudge. It's not new. It's been around a long time, but it's written in such a readable way about all of the different biases that are just inherent in us as humans. That's a really great primer to get an understanding of where the other person might be coming from. And second, find a trusted person in your life that you can practice with and find reasons to practice. I think people forget that there's all sorts of negotiation happening and happening in our lives or opportunities to negotiate not happening in our lives that we don't take advantage of and finding those little moments and a really trusted person who's willing to give you advice and feedback about how they felt and received your comments when you give them practice it before you go do it practice a job negotiation with somebody live before you go in practice going back to the store and returning an item and trying to get a refund instead of store credit with somebody before you go practice every little thing in every moment that you can volunteer for negotiating that's the scariest one volunteer negotiate for the team volunteer to negotiate for your family practice is what gets you there all right i love it Yeah, I would not think to volunteer to negotiate anything, but I guess that, yeah, that's a place. Can women hire other women to teach them to negotiate? Yes, absolutely. There are so many great courses. I was fortunate to have required curriculum as part of my graduate program that was run by an incredible woman who actually does negotiation on behalf of people who don't want to negotiate for themselves too. She has courses, but I've seen there's many courses all across um, different industries and curriculums. So absolutely, lots of courses available. Reading books on negotiation, I think, is hard. It's much better done in a workshop where you can practice and learn the skills. So many opportunities. Absolutely. Does your professor or your the person that you were speaking of, does she negotiate buying cars? <laughs> She negotiates everything. She negotiates literally everything. Absolutely. She's the one that taught me that we leave a lot of negotiation on the table. And I started seeing the world differently after I learned that. So (laughs) yeah, that's going to be an eye opener. Any last words for the women and men, maybe even tuning in? I would only add one more thing. I'm personally very passionate about making sure women spend time investing in themselves and understanding not just how to negotiate, but the the underlying finances of a situation. I feel like men are often mentored and counseled over the course of their career to dive into financials of a company and learn how to speak financial acumen. And women are given advice on how to manage soft skills. And the the key differentiator between two people that got a, a promotion versus not or were successful versus not is their financial acumen. So I know that's another topic for another day. but <laughs> And and that's really important when you're negotiating too. If you don't understand the finances, you're not going to get there on the, the negotiation piece. Yeah, no brilliant advice. And again, another conversation. We'll probably have to circle back to that one. <laughs> How can anyone listening find you? How can they reach out to you, connect Yes, thank you. I'm on LinkedIn, Nicole Taylor with two L and I C H O L L E Taylor. 
I'm happy to connect. My LinkedIn is open and I uh, would love to visit and talk. And if anybody wants to talk more about negotiation, I would love to have that conversation too. Please reach out. Awesome. And I'll include all your links and everything in the show notes. So awesome. thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today, Nicole. It has been an absolute pleasure. Likewise, Raven. I appreciate the time. I appreciate being invited and very much looking forward to connecting with your audience. Awesome. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to today's episode. For all the juicy deets on this episode, be sure to check out our show notes or give us a holler on Instagram at Hacking the Patriarchy Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support this podcast, don't be shy. Please share it with your friends. Sharing is caring after all. Lastly, if you'd like to lend your personal support, please take a moment to tell the world about it with a review on your favorite streaming platform. We'd be forever grateful. Tune in again soon to enjoy a brand new episode of the Hacking the Patriarchy podcast. And until next time, keep on hacking, my friends. If you've made it this far, I have one more little thing to share with you. Did you know that this isn't my only feminist endeavor? That's right. There's more. I run a media startup dedicated to providing the most current and pertinent news about women, for women, and by women. Our mission centers on delivering a platform where the latest updates regarding women-led initiatives are extensively covered, highlighting women's actions, accomplishments, perspectives, and other elements that profoundly influence women's lives and contribute to meaningful progress. I invite you to head over to femled.news to learn more. 